Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Detective Pycheck. Detective Pycheck is a member of the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, and he works in the Violent Crimes and Homicide Division. Detective, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us in today. No problem. Detective Pycheck investigated Sam's overdose death. We met with you after uh, you completed your investigation, and you were really helpful to, to us in terms of helping us to put all the pieces together and uh, try to figure out what happened to Sam and, and begin to process it in our own minds. And I felt as though it would be very helpful for our listeners to kind of share what you found with Sam's investigation uh, with the idea that perhaps we can share some, some uh, you know, have some teaching moments there and some valuable information for families that right now have a loved one that's struggling with opioid addiction. So again, um, Detective Pycheck, maybe we can start from the top on your investigation. Absolutely, I'd be happy to yeah, help and uh, you know give you my view on some things, and maybe that can be helpful to some of your listeners. Absolutely. So um, to begin with, just to let our listeners know, uh, we brought down Sam's cell phone. And Detective Pycheck, on the, uh, I believe that was the uh, morning of October 26th, you walked us through Sam's cell phone records, and you have it now. And maybe you can tell us just a little bit about what you were able to glean from his phone. Uh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> while looking through Sam's phone, I noticed that there, there was a, um, a number in there uh, with no name associated to it. Uh, the rest of his text messages had some type of name uh, indicator, you know, mom, dad, girlfriend, um, or just a friend's name attached to it. So usually when we see just a telephone number in you know, some text messages, uh, you know, it usually indicates that it's somebody that they don't, you know, want to associate a name with that number, um, especially in, in overdose deaths they typically don't put a name with a number of the person that they're buying their narcotics from. Want to keep it under the radar. Yes, definitely under the radar. So I, I, I looked through his phone and I did, I came up with this telephone number and there was just, you know, a very short 
uh, amount of text messages, although they ranged from October 2nd all the way through October 23rd, they really only spoke one, two, maybe three days um, on three different occasions. Uh, first dating back to October the 2nd, 2015. Uh, there was a text message <clears throat> from, you know, maybe they spoken before this and, and Sam had erased some of them and, and this is just what was left in his phone because it kind of starts out with just with the at symbol at 5 p.m. or at 5 o'clock. That was on October the 2nd, 2015. And Sam responded with meet at the meet at Shell on Linton and Congress, question mark. He responded back, yeah. So that probably, at least according to the cell phone, is the, um, that on that date is the only date where you have concrete records in, in your mind where he probably met and bought and made arrangements to buy. Some type. I would imagine that he, he uh, made arrangements that day to buy some type of narcotic from yeah. whoever is on the other end of this phone. Um, you know, a couple text messages back and forth. All righty, I'll see you then. Uh, a little later, uh, he texts the, uh, the subject back, where you at? He responded that he was on 10th. Uh, can I roll through? So just, just a few text messages back and forth. Um, and that cryptic kind of communication is typical for, I, I guess, communications like this and, and situations like this where it's a drug buy. Absolutely. Uh, they try not to give uh, specific areas. I, I know earlier in there, they, they, you know, Sam did say, you know, meet at the Shell station at Linton and Congress. That's pretty precise. Uh, normally they don't do that because they want to, if somebody does get their phone in, in this instance, me as a detective, you know, we can kind of, you know, put hard evidence together. So they try not to, to use those type of um, locations. Uh, so, you know, just going back, just going through his phone, you can see that on between October 2nd, and October 3rd, uh, they had talked back, uh, back and forth quite a bit. <clears throat> and I guess his last communication was on October, not the last, uh, but during that thread, his last contact with him was October the 3rd at 12.58 PM. And then it didn't pick back up again until October the 23rd. So between October 3rd and October 23rd, there was no communication as far as what this this cell phone shows me so one or one or two things he was either just getting back into this or he was getting stuff from somebody else or he had enough to last between that period or he sure. didn't use between that period he maybe sure. he was just getting back into it yeah so that three-week break that three-week break could have been a lot of different things could have been perhaps non-use yes could have been. Uh, so then, so then, uh, just prior to Sam's death on uh, October the twenty-third, it looks like um, it looks like the dealer contacted him at approximately twelve o nine p.m. on October the twenty-third, and he took that afternoon off of work. Yes. Yeah, and his. His girlfriend had gone away on a retreat. Yes, so that's uh, so he was off of work, and um, that was at twelve, like I said, twelve o nine p.m. So that would have been right after he got out of work, and then um, there was one other text message after that, October the twenty third at six forty p.m., and it stated, "Yo, you good?" 
And that was the last communication between Sam and the person, the other person on the other, the other end of this line. What do you read into that last communication? If you had to take a guess from all of your experience investigating, uh, you know, opioid overdose deaths, what would the scenario be? My guess is, A, he's either checking to see if what he sold him was a good product. Did he like it? Or on the other hand, he might have been concerned that and checking on him to see if he was okay, if he did overdose uh, and how he responded to it. So another possibility might be that they used together? They could be. They could be using together. And the only reason I say that is is because um, there may have been there may have been some other conversation that's not in this text message thread. Just all of a sudden, it pops up at thirteen hundred Northwest Seventeenth Avenue. There was no other conversation before that. Hmm. So maybe they had been talking in person, and the next thing was, and the next communication was via text message. Hmm. Sure. Um. So, could, have been a, could have been a friend from work, or could have been uh, a friend that, or a, an acquaintance that he had met somewhere else. Okay. So um, let's talk about, you also investigated the scene. Uh, you know, I guess you would call that a crime scene, I, I, I guess. Absolutely. Okay. So can you tell us about what you found there? It's, um, it's not about what I found and, and so, well, it, it's about what I found and it's about what wasn't there also. Um, <clears throat> there wasn't much to the scene. It looked like a typical, um, you know, male having, having fun playing video games, sitting on the couch. Uh, the house was not, uh, neat and tidy for the most part, except for the little room that he was in was a little, um, can we say, you know, bachelor style, a little food on the table, uh, you know, empty beer cans and beer bottles in the trash can, uh, video game, the TV was playing, you know, on a, on a cycle, uh, you know, the video game controller next to him. Looks like he was just having a, having a good time playing a video game. And this was the next day when you were on the scene. Correct. This was so the next you, day. The 24th. I Correct. Think it was sometime late afternoon. Yes. Yes, it was uh, late afternoon. Okay. It was late afternoon. Uh, we did locate some medications in in the bathroom that were prescribed to Sam. Uh, as far as that, there was no there was no presence of narcotics within the residence that we could find. Now, sometimes that's. Sometimes that's normal. Let me use a better word. That may not be normal, but sometimes people can use a narcotic in which would have a delayed effect on them passing. So usually when somebody uses, uh, correct me again, correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. but when somebody uses uh, heroin, yes. in this case it was you know, heavily laced with fentanyl. When they use, chances are they nod right off. Chances are pretty good that he nods off within five minutes. Right? Yes. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. chances are pretty good. Okay. 
And it also depends on how it was administered. Hmm. If it was administered uh, intravenously, you know, through a, a needle, you get a quicker reaction to it. That's why they do that. That's why they, they inject it into their into their veins and into their bloodstream because mm -hmm. it, it, it is a faster response. Yeah. Uh, it can be taken in a pill form, which it would be absorbed, you know, just naturally through the, uh, through the stomach and as it, as it breaks down, which would be a slower reaction because it takes a minute for the enzymes in your you know stomach to break through that capsule and distribute that heroin through your body. Okay. So it depends on which way it is administered. I don't know how fast it could take effect. Okay. So I think what I'm what I'm hearing here is don't read anything into the fact that everything was pretty clean, no uh, hints of drug uh, drug use there. Uh, you know, there could have been somebody there to you know or not to explain that. Correct. There there could have been somebody there with him mm -hmm. taking, you know, the heroin with him. And they both could have been affected, you know, immediately with the heroin. Uh, unfortunately, Sam didn't survive. Maybe the other person did. This could just this is just a hypothetical. If there was somebody there and he did survive or she did survive, they could have, out of fear of being in trouble, cleaned up whatever narcotics were there and left the residence, not wanting to be involved and not wanting to call the police because he was already expired. Yeah, and, and thus the text back, you know, you good later on if they witness something. I mean, that's one possibility. Yes, I mean, it, and, and, and typically, <clears throat> I wouldn't say typically, but it could not even have been the person that in this text messages, text message could not, could have possibly not been the person with him. It could have been somebody else. And, but the dealer was just checking on him hmm. to see if he liked the product. And also maybe just check on him, see if he was good. It doesn't mean that he was there taking it with him. There could have been somebody else there with him. Certainly. So um, there's a lot of unknowns here. There is a lot of unknowns. Yeah. Um, but the one thing that as a parent, it would seem is very clear. You have the number of the individual, it would appear, who probably more than likely hooked him up with the drugs. Yes. So can you tell us why that isn't good enough to go after him and, and nail him? Well, in any case, you have to have solid evidence that you have to present to the state attorney's office to be able to move forward with charges in any case, whether it be a robbery, whether it be a, you know, a, an assault and battery, um, whether it be a homicide. You know, Just in any case, you have to have evidence that and, and solid evidence that, that points to um, a suspect. In why, cases, why is this not solid evidence? For most parents, they would think, "Look, you got his number. That's solid evidence." Well, in, in some instances, just because it's a telephone number, you don't know who that tele telephone number is is issued to. So, I mean, some some of these phones they can get. Um, they're just a. Um, it's just a, a phone that they can buy at the gas station and put it in anybody else's name throw some minutes on it and use that as what they call a burner phone. Yeah. So really that phone doesn't come back to anybody. Or if it comes back, it comes back to a guy named John Smith. And you'll never know who that person is unless you can really trace that phone back to maybe a video when the person bought it uh, and, and try to work, work back that way. But then you also have to determine 
the person on the other end of this line has to know that the product that he's selling them is going to do him extreme harm or death. You have to be able to prove that. And, 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 that's the, and that's the hardest thing is to prove that the person on the other end of this line is actually the person that sold to him. Or did he or was he just the guy on the other end of the phone and he distributed it to another guy and that person was a runner and delivered the drugs to him? He's going to say, well, I don't know. I gave him something else. I don't know. He I don't know what that guy gave him. I gave him a oxycodone. I didn't give him heroin. Sure. You know, so you it's it's very it's extremely hard to work that back. Now we are, and we have uh, looked into other means of trying to prove these things now. So we are currently working with our narcotics unit to try to come up with some type of protocol, some type of way of trying to work this backwards to try to make cases. Because if we can, well, ultimately, yes, we will take these to the state attorney if we can prove it. So right now, as we speak, you're working on a new way to pass this off to a special group within your organization to investigate this further, to try and bring with, with new technology. Not necessarily pass it off, but work in conjunction with them to work it back. Mm-hmm. And with the, the help from them on the narcotic side to try to put these things together. And if we can get enough inform- or if we can get enough evidence, substantial evidence, hard evidence, then yes, the, you know, then we can take this case forward to the state attorney uh, and, and try to bring criminal charges against these people. Yeah. So what are the lessons learned from this that could be shared with other families who have a loved one who's struggling with opioid addiction? Um, are, are there any salient points that we might be able to share with them? And, and perhaps one thing is your knowledge in terms of how a parent might be able to um, investigate on their own, uh, you know, when they've got things that they suspect are going on with their loved one. Can you comment on that? You know, I've kind of used this word before. You almost got to, as a parent, you almost have to be like a stalker to your children, whether it be it's tough. It's tough because when they become of age, of 18 years old, I guess in most states they're an adult. Uh, you know, they have their rights and privacy and, and privilege to, you know, make their own decisions in life. But prior to 18, uh, you know, parents have a little bit more power and leeway to, you know, control the things that their children do. Um Like I said, you almost have to be a stalker. You have to be sneaky about things, you know, looking into, you know, looking through their stuff, you know, when they're, you know, maybe not home. If it's, you know, laid out in the open, if their phone, you know, if you control their phone as a juvenile, you know, they have to show you, you know, you know, get passcodes, you know, so you can look and see what they're talking about. Um, just look at their behavior. I mean, if they're sleeping all the time, um, if they're, uh, you know, locking themselves in the room and not coming out, uh, just you have to really look at the behavioral changes, uh, you know, and ask questions. Be involved. I mean, because if you're in their face, if you're talking about it, and if you're in their face, uh, you know, I, 
I think it helps more being involved than just sitting back and letting them letting them go. Yeah. Uh, also, you know, when they're an adult, listen, they, they make their own decisions. You can only do as much as you can do. But ultimately, they're going to have to want to do the right thing also. Yeah. But I, I really like the word that you use when you say stalker, become a stalker. So you have to throw out this concept of, well, they're an adult, they should have their, I should respect their privacy, etc. Because we're really talking about life and death. Yes. It's that serious. It is that serious. So, uh, as you know, yesterday I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Martin and at uh, Lynn University. And he shared with me something, a process that I'd like you to comment on. Okay. What, he, what he shared was that he, and he felt strongly about this, when you sense that your loved one is, is using and you find proof of that, and maybe they're, say, away from, at school, they're at high school, you know, they're in class, and you go in their room, you look around, you find that. The first thing you do, you go right down there and you meet up with them. The next thing you do is you take them and you get them tested, both blood and urine. And if, if it proves to be right, then you bring them in to a treatment facility for assessment and counseling. I'm not saying admitting them, but treatment and uh, discussion and overall assessment. So that process, I'd never heard of that before, but I mean, it's a 911 for a parent. That's the parent's call right away. So I wanted to present that to you and, and just get your thoughts on it, Detective. I think that's a great tactic, uh, especially if they're a juvenile. You can use that, especially. Uh, as an adult, you know, it's, it's tougher because they can tell you no. Sure. Uh, you know, but, you know, if they're a young adult, 18, 19 years old, and they're away at college, um, you know, there can be other things that you can, you know, use as leverage, maybe to get them into those programs. Money. Hey, I'm not going to pay for this anymore. I'm not going to pay for your cell phone anymore. I'm not going to pay for this, you know. And hopefully that would drive them to say, huh, okay, maybe I need to, to get into that. But that's a great, I mean, that is a great way. I mean, you have to address it, yes, immediately if you find something. Drop everything. Yes. And, yeah. Yes. That was really the first time that I heard that, and, and that was um, kind of a, a eureka moment, so to speak. So, uh, Detective, what would you like to share with our listeners about some of the warning signs of opioid addiction? Warning signs, um, excessive uh, sleep, seclusion. Seclusion. Yeah, they seclude themselves into their room. Uh, kind, of, kind of like a depressed state. They go through, you know, depression. Yeah. It, you know, really brings them down. Um, also, theft. Like if you see things missing from the house, if you start seeing things missing or if you you know you're giving them an allowance of a hundred dollars for the week and it's been working just fine for food and whatever and next thing you know they're coming to you halfway through the week and saying i need some more money you know that that could be because they're they're buying 
you know, drugs, you know, so I would say, hey, make them prove where that money's going before you give them more money. Um, sure. Spoons? How about spoons? You hear spoons? that? Oh, yeah. spoons, spoons? Spoons missing? Spoons missing, yeah. If you look in your drawer, you've had, you know, 12, uh, 12 spoons in your uh, in your drawer. Now you're down to six. Where are they at? What do they do with the spoons? Uh, spoons, you know, because, you know, the spoon is typically used to, to heat up the to melt the heroin down so they can be sucked through a syringe and injected into their veins. Um, and most people would just kind of think, huh, where did that go? Well, I guess the dishwasher, right? And, and and would just kind of out of their mind and move on. Correct. But that's a warning sign. That is a warning sign. Simple. It's definitely that's a warning it. sign. Yeah. Or if you find a spoon on the floor that looks like it had, I mean, you can tell that there's been something burnt in there. But if it's been sitting there for a while, you could, you could probably think that that was just food that was left on there. Um, you know, after a while, if is is you know, especially if the if the um, cotton ball piece was uh, off of there and it was just how does that work? I, I, how's the cotton? I'm sorry, I don't. They know use this. a cotton, the cotton or a cigarette filter, or, you know, a piece of a cigarette filter. They use it to filter the fluid through. They they stick the needle into the into the uh, cotton ball and suck the the heroin through that. It's, a, it's a filtering. Filter. It's a filtering process. So, Detective, what key piece of advice do you have for the families of an opioid addict? Well, the key piece of advice, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of advice. Um, you have to stay vigilant and you have to stay on top of it. Um, you have to be in their face. You have to... Um, you have to stay strong and you have to... You have to do things that that isn't very nice, but what I mean that is you have to be tough. You have to be tough on them. Uh, you can't give in to them because they're going to manipulate you every turn that they can get to get over on you. So you're going to have to stay firm. Um, you have to set rules, and you have to stick by those rules. You can't can't waver. You can't. It's uh, no money, no money, no money, no money. You can't give them anything. You give them an inch, they're going to take a mile. You just have to, you have to stay strong. You have to keep on them. You have to keep on them in a program. You have, like I said, you have to stalk them. You have to stick with them um, to be by their side all the time. Unfortunately, until they get over a certain hump to where you, where you think you can trust them. But it's not going to be soon. Don't, it's going to take a long time. On average, how long does that take in your experience from what you've witnessed? I don't know if I could put a time limit on it because each individual person is different. Mm -hmm. I've heard you know. that it takes more than 35 weeks for the brain to recover, for the most part, from use. That's non-use for 35 weeks. I've heard that number before. Uh, but even then, it still takes a long time because the temptations are still there. Sure. The triggers uh, are out the there. The triggers are out there. You have to get them away from, you have to get them away from everything that they've known. Almost start over. Yeah. Well, you know, it is. It's a new life. For it them. is. Yeah. And they you have to get them away from uh, the people, the the area that they live. You know, you have to put them in a almost in a total different area. Get them away from everything. Yeah. And you just have to be with them. I think. I think you just have to kind of put your thumb on them and, and be with them. That's my advice. Yeah. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. You know. Um. So something came up yesterday in our dry run. That um, where you talked about, we talked specifically 
about Boca Raton recovery houses and the fact that this is kind of this area is the mecca for treatment. And that's a good news, bad news thing because all of the dealers know that it's a mecca and they know they've got a active, a huge market right here. So they almost, using your word stock in a different capacity here, they almost stock them right there just outside the houses. So can, can you just kind of talk us through that? Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't say just um, Boca Raton by any any means, but I, I would say Palm Beach County in general has a large amount of different treatment centers. And also, which what comes with the treatment centers then uh, are the halfway houses uh, after they complete their initial treatment in the center to where they're trying to integrate them back into you know, society and giving them a little bit more freedom. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, a lot of these houses are in the lower income areas because these treatment centers are able to purchase them at a, you know, a reduced price and renovate them, you know, fix them up. And, and then that's when, you know, then they put them back and then they put the, you know, the patients back into these uh, neighborhoods. Unfortunately, these neighborhoods aren't the best neighborhoods. Um, and, and most of your, um, Patients don't drive. They don't have cars down here. You know, they they have to walk to the gas station, uh, and the walk between the house and the gas station, in in some instances, I've seen it firsthand because I've arrested, uh, you know, dealers targeting people that are coming out of the halfway houses and 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 trying to sell them, you know, crack or heroin or marijuana. Um, you know, they may be they may be they may encounter two dealers or three dealers in between the walk from the house to the gas station or at the gas station. It's really, it's really sad, you know, because they've made it this far. Yeah. But they're still vulnerable. And these dealers know that. Yeah. And they know it and they know these houses. So they position themselves in and around these houses to, you know, to make their sales. Some would probably say that's like, Shooting fish in a barrel. Absolutely. Absolutely. Brutal. Oh. So, Detective Pichek, is there anything else that you've learned from your opioid overdose investigations that you can share to help other families avoid that same fate? I would say that you just have to you have to, to you have to devote time and you have to be you have to be there yeah you, you just have to devote your time to um, helping your loved one because if you're not there to help them they're not going to help themselves so I want to hit on before we close I want to hit on one thing and that is choice it's their choice it was their choice they choose to do this versus it's a disease. It's a chronic disease that kills. Can you weigh in on that? That's the, it's that, that weighs, that's all part of the stigma, right? There is. There is a stigma. I mean, some people say that it's a, um, that it's a victimless crime. But I don't look at it that way. Um, 
they do make that choice and they do they, they make the choice to take the drug but then at some point the to drug s- to start to start know. yes right. the, to start the you know prior to addiction prior to addiction they when make a choice they make a conscious choice to take an illegal narcotic or they're prescribed or they're prescribed legal legal but then i believe they choose to abuse that legal prescription some do some of them just get hooked but they made they, they made a choice to take they made a cho- they make a choice to take the heroin once they're addicted but after a while it takes over your body and now that that's when i think it becomes the mental sickness part of it just my opinion. So, and I, I guess we maybe have just a little bit different views on this. And and to be fair, it's just like treatment. It's a case-by-case case thing. It is a case-by-case. And case. It, it happens differently with, with many people. Um, the, the scenario that we hear, of course, and I'm sure you hear also over and over and over again, is doctor over-prescribes. Uh, the, the individual follows instructions, and sure enough, within a week, they're hooked. Doesn't take long. No, not at all. In which case, um, they're they're absolutely the victim of this whole thing. And um, regardless, though, of whether it's through recreation and consciously abusing, or whether it's legally prescribed, they do end up in a place of addiction where their mind has been hijacked. I would agree with that. I would say that I would say that you're correct in that. Um, you know, like I said, it all stems back to, in some in some cases, doctors overprescribed. People took the medication which they were thinking was going to help them, uh, whether they took it correctly and got hooked, or they abused it and got hooked. It was because it was prescribed to them, but. I think doctors overprescribed in many cases. Now, on the other hand, some people weren't addicted to the pills per se. They may have taken another route and started with recreational marijuana, which might have led to uh, recreational cocaine, and then which might have turned into let me try heroin. So I think there is two sides to this. Some people could have got hooked through the pain medications, which was prescribed, and then there's other people that that have just been chronic drug users from from day one and, and didn't go the pill route, but just, you know, took illegal drugs or took illegal prescription medication that wasn't prescribed to them because they could get it from a friend. Sure. Um, and then once, you know, once that takes a hold of their body, it's, it's over from there. I mean, then it becomes the sickness because it's taken over their body. Chronic disease. Chronic disease. And then it is hard to kick. Opiate addiction is the hardest hardest thing to kick. So let's just for a minute before we conclude talk a little bit about the um, additional, the other drugs that the heroin that you're seeing now is cut with. Fentanyl and carfentanyl. So um, what uh, oftentimes these people think is something that they're used to, surprise, they're not. 
Yes, uh, especially here uh, in the in the Palm Beach area, almost every recent case of heroin overdose, uh, there has been presence of you know high levels of fentanyl in the in the heroin. Uh, dealers are cutting you know are, are cutting the heroin with the fentanyl because users are demanding the you know the better high high potency stuff the high potency stuff they want to they want to they want a bigger high and a bigger high and a bigger high so if if they're not getting that from dealer one because he's not using fentanyl they're gonna they're gonna find a, a dealer that's using it that's giving them a better high hmm. and and I've talked to I've talked to other addicts and they they know that this next one could be the lethal dose they know it so we've heard that they flock to where they hear of someone actually overdose and dying from say fentanyl laced heroin I've heard that they flock to that area to buy that I've, I've heard that before I've hmm. heard that from from people on the street. So you can validate that. Mm -hmm. and, and that's just so counterintuitive. And if to somebody who is not of that, that world, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I think that that kind of underscores how powerful this addiction is and how it hijacks the brain. Because Absolutely. if you're of sane mind, there's no way in hell you do that, right? Absolutely. This, that just goes to show you that they that their mind has been taken over by the drug. And the only thing that they are thinking about is the next high and the next high after that and the next high. And, and they've even said that they know that the next time they take heroin could be the last, but they still do it. That's how much, that's how powerful it is. It's amazing. It's crazy. Wow. I want to thank you, Detective Pichek, for your time and also um, for the compassion that uh, you displayed and showed for me and my family. Um, it, that, that really helped when you met with us just a few days after Sam's passing. And um, I, I, from, from myself and my family, just want to thank you for that. And, and also thank you for generously giving of your time both today and, and yesterday in our little dry run, as I call it. Um, so before we close, do you have any final comments for our listeners? Um, I do. There's a uh, there's a, a program that the sheriff's office kind of promotes. It's uh, Nope. Uh, it's a it's an organization that you know puts information out about uh, addiction and how to deal with addiction. So uh, it's a good resource. I suggest that anybody uh, that is involved with this to to look it up. We will go ahead and have that, uh, a link to the website associated with this podcast on our website. And of course, um, Dr. Martin, who I interviewed yesterday, was one of the founders of NOPE. That's so, what I understand. Uh, yeah. I, I wasn't, I haven't met Dr. Martin, but yeah. I've heard his name a lot. Yeah, he's still, haven't had the pre I haven't had the pleasure to meet him yet. But. Yeah. Well, we'll have to introduce the two of you and get you hooked up. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I want to thank you again, though. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Okay. So we've been meeting today with Detective Joseph Pichek, who is from the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office and works in the Violent Crimes and Homicide Division, who was uh, really very, very helpful uh, for myself and my family in helping to put the pieces together 
for uh, what happened to our son. I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover Two Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover Two Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover Two team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.